This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So we are giving this message in a country known as the United States of America. The United States of America today is very different than it has been in the past. It is an embattled country right now where, in a sense, we are in the midst of a civil war, but it's a very different civil war than we experienced back in the 1860s. It's a civil war that is based on ideology. There is a sharp difference in perspective, and it depends on which glasses you are wearing. And each side of that equation is convinced in their correctness, and as a result, it makes it very difficult to communicate across the lines. If you divide it into Republican-Democrat, you would be accurate. The, The one group of people that has the potential to communicate across the lines is the Christian community. Because we do not speak from political vantage points, we speak from a spiritual vantage point. And we speak to the issues of the soul, of the heart. And as a result, this is a working of the Holy Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit can come into the dark place and shine light. Now, it's very difficult to talk about truth in a world that is almost anti-truth, because it sounds very elitism to say, Yes, and there is one truth, and that truth is Jesus Christ. And so, and you could fill in the blanks, this is, it's creating a tension for the church to actually function in its role today. You guys can uh, come on in. You could either uh, be back here in that row or way up close uh, up here. This one is called In the Wake of Columbus. The last two messages before this in this series called The Spiritual Biography of a Nation, uh, I've dealt with Columbus, of all people, uh, the very same time period when statues of Columbus are being taken down, that entire states are basically coming to the conclusion that there needs to be an eradication of Columbus. Here's what's interesting. I'm not for tearing down monuments and spray painting monuments at all. I actually am offended by it at a certain level. But if you were to ask me, Eric, uh, should we as a country memorialize Christopher Columbus, I would say to the degree that we remember where we came from and the history, I think it's important to remember Christopher Columbus, to the degree of memorializing him, whoa, I might stop uh, somewhere along the line, any more than I would want to memorialize Adolf Hitler. And I'm not going to compare them directly across. However, what Christopher Columbus is going to do is not necessarily altogether healthy. And so as a Christian, if I just have my Christian lens on, I don't have my pro-American lens on, I am going to say, okay, I get it. I get why people are upset about Christopher Columbus. However, Christopher Columbus is in a strange sense going to be used by God to bring about something profound. And that's why I'm going to call this in the wake of Christopher Columbus or in the wake of Columbus. Because what we're going to see is that Christopher Columbus is actually going to do some harm. And yet, out of that 
harm is going to come something very beautiful. And I don't want to give Christopher Columbus the credit for that. And that's why you'd see me say, well, I'm not going to go out and topple uh, monuments. That's not necessarily what I would propose as a solution. However, I would say an accurate understanding of history is always healthy. I have no issue with the fact that America has some challenges in its root system, has some problems in its heritage, because we could take any nation and we could find the same things. It's full of humans, humans with selfish desires and bents that are going to be fleshly. Yet in the midst of that, God can raise up lights that will shine in the midst of darkness. So Christopher Columbus is going to start with the right heart. His entire motivation at first, at least on paper, is that he wants to be a light bearer, which is what his name means, Christopher. He believes that he was given this name on purpose so that he could bear the light of Christ unto the, uh, to the, to the East Indies is the way he looked at it, that he thought he was going to be circumventing the globe and they were going to finish and have this whole circle uh, finalized as he goes across the Atlantic and we're going to discover uh, now an avenue into Asia that has never before been. And he didn't discover an avenue into Asia, he discovered a new world. And it, it is an extraordinary story that should not be diminished. Just its grandeur in the storytelling side of it is, is amazing. What this guy did, and when I gave the message, The Twig with the Roses, I'm showing that there is an attribute to Christopher Columbus which is amazing, and that is his dogged faith. And he will continue forward and continue forward even at the peril of his own life. And I tell you what, we as Christians could gain something from his example of faith. And yet, he is going to have a weakness, and that is for self-glory and for gold. And this is going to be a weakness in the church at the time. At the, in the church at the time, in the late 1400s, the early 1500s, there is a great degree of corruption. Okay, it is what is understood as the Catholic system. There, the Protestant Reformation has not yet come. And so as a result, corruption is ruling in the church. And so I guess it should not surprise us to know that that which is coming forth and representing the church is not always healthy. And yet in the midst of this, there is a movement towards missions. And I, I know that that sounds strange because like, well, of course there's a movement towards missions. That's just what the church does. Well, for a long period of time, the church didn't do it. There's called the Dark Ages. And so we have this awakening, this stirring within the body of Christ, where it's a genuine strain of belief and faith. And they believe the Word of God, and they believe that Jesus Christ is the answer. And so you see that there's, first of all, it's monasteries. And there's a separation from the world to say the world's going corrupt, so we're going to separate. However, then those monasteries are going to begin to stir and say, well, we can't just keep this light to ourselves. What good does it do to just keep it under a bushel? We need to actually spread it. And so there's this period of time which is going to launch in 1492, this age of discovery, when Columbus discovers this new world that is going to create this gold rush. And anytime you've ever seen or studied a gold rush, it doesn't lead to good things. And this is going to be the conquistador era. So all these Spanish conquistadors are going to begin to go after their gold. And to do that, they are going to subjugate people groups. And it is horror compiled on horror multiplied by horror. It is a terrible season that if I were in, here I am studying World War II and I was in this last week studying the Holocaust specifically, I would say, yep, kind of like that, a genocide. 
This is terrible stuff. At the very beginnings of what we understand as this new world in America is going to be barbarism. It is bad stuff, but it's also coming from a bad root system. But I want to, in the midst of all of this, instead of toppling a monument and spray painting it, I want to show you God's hand in this because God's not behind the conquistadors. The enemy is. That's Satan's work. Satan's always up to no good. And so when something like this is happening, you see that gold rush passion that is always there. It's, it's not just in the age of discovery. This has always been there. That desire for power, that desire for wealth. And they're, what are they looking for? The fountain of youth. I mean, all of the things that they're going after are these legendary fabled things that will somehow solve the riddles of their life that are only solved through Jesus Christ. So Christopher Columbus, in 1492, he discovers a new world with a stated purpose to share the gospel. In 1506, he dies having unwittingly sponsored a form of barbarity almost unrivaled in world history. Columbus, if you study his life, it's not that inspiring. I, I'm just going to be blunt about it. And I'm, I'm not just trying to throw a jab and join the club uh, with Christopher Columbus. I'm going to say he has an essence, an element of his life which is very impressive. And that is his willingness to doggedly pursue this new world, even though everyone mocked him, everyone laughed at him, and then he's going to find it beating all odds. And it's an extraordinary thing, but the moment he finds it, something begins to curdle. And then even on his way back, the story back uh, to, to Spain is is, is worthy of a movie. I just, like I said the other day, I don't think anyone's going to make this movie right now. However, it is a good story because he actually almost died multiple times on the way back. I mean, it, and he, no one would have ever known that a new world was discovered. I mean, that's how close it was. If you were to look at it in all of world history, the fact that it's been discovered and now he's coming back, but it, I mean, he, he's up against the rocks. I mean, literally, he, he's going to sink in multiple uh, situations. That boat's going to tip, and they're going down in the ocean, and they somehow make it back. Uh, Portugal, they end up on the, the, uh, the shores of Portugal, and uh, King John II has already commanded every port that if Columbus comes back and lands there to take him hostage and don't let any you know, rumor or any notice of the fact that he is there to be spread to Spain so that they can then hear the stories and go get the, the, the new world. And so where, where do they end up? Portugal. And I mean, so this, there's all sorts of uh, grand storyline in this. Columbus does make it back. He's honored in Spain. He becomes basically almost the equivalent of royalty in Spain, and it goes straight to his head. I mean, this guy has serious issues. I mean, it's embarrassing. Even reading the story, it's like, oh, Christopher. And he wants to go back and find more. And he wants to rule Hispaniola, which is the island of Haiti, Dominican Republic. He wants to take that territory, and that he wants to be the governor of it. So he goes back, and it's just disaster. This guy can't uh, govern anything. I mean, it just, you know, implodes on him. And so he gets basically booted out of his own country that he discovered. And he goes on multiple expeditions and he discovers what we would understand as South America. Uh, and well, in that discovery, that's going to, because of the rumors that come back that Columbus has discovered gold, well, now South America is endangered. Okay, so we're going to see everything from Mexico uh, down to Peru uh, be, I mean, this is territory that the 
conquistadors are going after because there's gold there. And you have Montezuma's uh, kingdom, you have the Incan kingdom, and these, the bar barbarity that is going to take place in what is understood as South America, uh, Central and South America, is really bad. And where did that come from? Yeah, you know, uh, Columbus, thank you, buddy, uh, for all your great work uh, that you did for us. In other words, yeah, I could see why people could get upset with it. However, Columbus's motive wasn't that, and I have a hunch, even on his deathbed, if someone were to tell him, look what has happened because of your life, he would be horrified. That wasn't his intent. His intent was to share the gospel. I don't think he reached one soul. Isn't that an irony? In other words, the fact that you can set out with these good intentions doesn't necessarily mean that you are fulfilling them. The Spanish challenge. So, Christopher Columbus is Italian, but he's going to be sent by uh, the Spanish government. So he represents Spain. And the Spanish, now that they've discovered this new world, are beginning to send over colonists. And they want to begin to stake claim to it and all the gold around there. And so they have a problem. So I'm going to uh, give you that problem. How do you make natives into good and obedient citizens of the Spanish Empire? It's a challenge for Spain. Now, Spain has a solution for this. Uh, I don't know how well thought through it was, but they had a form of government. And uh, the Spanish answer is the encomienda, which is a form of government which is very dictatorial. And so, for instance, as an example, uh, Columbus uh, received an encomienda. So he shows up on Hispaniola, and he is absolute dictator over that territory, and everyone, according to the Spanish law, everyone, every one of the natives in that land immediately becomes his slave. So they must do his will. So if they don't, well then he has executive authority to do whatever he needs to to break them. And so this is a form of government which is going to lead to terrible atrocities. Edmund Burke, uh, much later in uh, history, is going to make this statement, and I just want us to let it linger in the air a little, because I think it could do good for our entire country to ponder this right now, and that is, if I cannot have reform without injustice, I will not have reform. You see, the Spanish are going to come into this new world and they're going to try and reform it for Spanish purposes so that people could behave as Spaniards. And that's very difficult when someone comes into your backyard and begins to tell you now how to live your life. I mean, you can just imagine how challenging that would be if you're one of these natives. Now, the natives were living in darkness. They didn't have the gospel of Jesus. However, this is not going to communicate to them the gospel of Jesus. And most of the people coming over, almost 99.99999% of them, have no interest in the gospel of Jesus. They have interest in power and wealth Gold, very specifically. And they know these natives know where the gold is. So they're going to beat these natives into subjection until they start giving away their gold stash. Until they tell them where the secret stashes are. And so you have this very strange uh, event in history taking place. You may want to reform something. For instance, we have people that want to reform America. And so what are they doing? They're doing things that are unjust to try and bring about a new form of justice. That just isn't how it works. And so in every situation, in every society, it would do as well to remember Edmund Burke's words, if I cannot have reform without injustice, I will not have reform. Two wrongs do not make a right. So there may be a wrong out there, but if you have to 
do something evil, perpetrate evil to try and correct that wrong, you're actually not solving the problem. And Jesus, when he came to rescue us, did not commit injustice. That's an amazing thought because we were held captive and we needed to be set free. We were slaves, but he did not violate the slave owner-slave relationship. He actually nullified the authority of the slave because the only authority that slave had was we were in the kingdom of darkness because we sinned. And that was his own, that was Satan's legal hold over us. And so as a result, when he nullified our sin, he actually severed Satan's ability to hold us and contain us. So without stealing us, he gained us. It's an amazing statement. God did not break the law. In him was no sin. God did not have to break the law to reform our lives. It's an incredible statement. And so as a result, in all our pictures, Christians, of the idea of reform, we have a Christ mentality. Christ, give us wisdom. How can we do this? Now, there is something called civil disobedience, which we have discussed uh, in and through this process, and that is when lowercase l man laws violate God's capital L heavenly law. And in those situations, we still must serve the capital L heavenly law. However, if the lowercase l law does not ask us to violate the capital L law, we will submit. Oh, those are some tensions. And I know that uh, for many of us, even in the COVID-19 season, we've sort of struggled with some of that. It's like, I think this is going to violate the capital L law. At least we want it to because we really don't want to obey the lowercase l law. The barbarity of the age of discovery. The evils of the encomienda system. So this season of world history is known as the age of discovery. I mean, there's so much happening. We have explorers everywhere. They're discovering. I mean, the globe is actually forming in everyone's mind before our eyes in a matter of 100 years. It's an incredible process. And it really is fascinating. You know, when I was taught this in public school, there was never once a mention of the atrocities and the evils and the barbarism. It was just sort of just fact. This is how it all happened. I was never taught like, hey, and that was morally incorrect. It's interesting that now it's all morally incorrect. It was just fascinating to me because it's always been wrong. Slavery has always been a form of evil, and yet in certain periods it's not seen. And then in other seasons, you know, it's just like, whoa, this is terrible. And so it's fascinating to me, not that it solves any riddles uh, for us today, but it's, it's interesting because this, the barbarity of the age of discovery is a very real thing, but something is going to come out of this which is going to be a light shining in the midst of darkness. That's, of course, my whole point. I really don't care about the barbarity. I don't want to focus on the barbarity. I don't want to give it any uh, more screen time than it deserves. So the beginnings, the terrors of Hispaniola. Hispaniola is going to be... Well, I'll give you the, the brief background. So this is the island which we know as Haiti and Dominican Republic. So this is where the first settlement is going to take place under Columbus. And there are around 300,000 natives on this island. In the next four, five years, there will be around 10 to 20,000 remaining. They're all liquidated, if you want to say it that way. Now, there's just reasons, according to the Spanish, they were disobedient, they were uh, insubordinate. I mean, it's a complete destruction of a people group. And so I don't even know who, I mean, do we have any people that used to live there? I mean, when you, when you look at uh, who's there now, it's like, I, I, I don't know that they were originally there. So it's like this whole island was completely devastated. 
That's how it's going to start. This encomienda system under Columbus, by the way, is going to bring about a form of genocide. Mexico, uh, the Khan of Cortez. These are great stories, by the way. If you just look at them as, as adventure movies, they'd be fun to watch. Indiana Jones-esque. So Cortez is going to come into Mexico to the Aztec kingdom, which is quite vast and loaded with gold. And uh, so they are going to look at Cortez as... Uh, uh, no, is that Cortez or Pizarro? Uh, yes, it's Cortez, uh, that they actually think of him as their god. So he's this white-skinned god. That, uh, and, and so as a result, they allow him into the capital city. And so what he does is he takes captive a Montezuma and basically controls, using Montezuma's power, takes over the Aztec kingdom. And as a result, it all comes into, and, under his power. And he, begins, he ends up being the governor of what used to be the Aztec kingdom, which is now called Mexico City. Peru, uh, the shame of Pizarro. Pizarro is going to uh, come in and he is going to take captive. He's going to follow the model of Cortez. He is going to take captive the, uh, the, the leader, the king. I can't remember the guy's name, Atahupo. Uh, and he is going to then put up a ransom for him. In other words, I'm going to kill your king uh, unless you give me a whole room full of gold. And strangely, as impossible of the ta as the task was, they do it. And they actually fill an entire room with gold up to the ceiling. And then Pizarro is going to say, well, but Montez, or not Montez, Atahupo actually created other crimes. He's untrustworthy and he kills him. So this is the beginnings. You could understand why in Central America, South America, there might not be high opinion of the conquistadors. It was evil. It was bad. It was greedy. And this is actually what we could say Columbus is starting, okay? So when, when, I, when we say that Columbus, what he's accomplished isn't necessarily that wonderful, yeah, on, I, I can totally get that on this hand. On the other side, there is something that is going to be created as we know, something known as the United States of America, that though it is hanging in the balance right now and sort of beginning to crumble to pieces, it is going to be a bastion an environment in which the freedom of Christianity can thrive and then spread throughout the nations. So somehow in the midst of all this darkness, a light is going to shine. So if we were to stop right here, we could ask the question, is this what this new world is all about? Where is God in all of this? And I think it would be a fair question. If that's all our history was, then I could understand why we might want to topple some monuments and spray paint a few things. It's like, this is terrible stuff, guys. I'm standing against this too. I have no support of any of that. That is the exact opposite of what I would believe we should do. Well, Eric, aren't you a good Spaniard? Don't you believe we should spread the gospel? I believe we should spread the gospel. Not like that. That is not how the gospel is spread. You want to hinder the gospel? You do that. You pull a Cortez. You pull a Pizarro. You pull a Columbus. In other words, I don't care if they call themselves Christians. That makes no difference to me. That isn't Christianity. So, how in the world is this story going to turn? 1519. So, remember, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So, we're not talking that many years later, right? 1519, two things are going to be happening in the world simultaneously. You have this corrupt version of Christianity. I don't even want to call it Christianity. This corrupt version of the church 
which is actually not the church. It is some weird, funky thing that's going on in the world at the time as a result of the Dark Ages. Cortez is capturing Montezuma and raping Mexico of its wealth in 1519. You know what is happening over in Europe? Martin Luther is nailing 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg. Isn't that an interesting uh, parallel? In other words, what you see is something is awakening in the world. This church is corrupt, is what Martin Luther is saying. Now, Martin Luther has some of his own issues, too, in his own baggage. Uh, however, what you see is an awakening, a stirring that is taking place in the church of Jesus Christ. The strange providence. So this is sort of the funny twist to this. The conquistadors, as bad as these guys are, they're going to bring along with them Franciscans and Dominicans. Uh, uh, and they're going to... Uh, bring them these missionaries along. Why? So that they can teach the people to behave like good Spaniards. The missionaries want to come. You know why? There's lost souls over there. And so this awakening of missions is actually a very real thing in the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ, if you were to study it in the early, early 1500s, is like weird it doesn't behave correctly. It has weird ideas woven into it. A lot of this idea is sort of like Hitler's purge the world of all racial impurity. Yeah, they had all sorts of weird thoughts like that. I wouldn't even know to call it the church, right? But in the midst of it, there is an actual yearning and desire to win souls for Christ and to love people and to even lay down their life in so doing. So the conquistadors bring missionaries along with them. This territory to the north, which we know as the United States of America, however, when you go from Mexico into the United States of America, what do you run into? You run into some desert territory, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Southern California, right? And so to them, it was called God-forsaken territory. That's how, it's how the conquistadors looked at it. They don't want to go north. There's no gold north. There's desert. There's sand North, That's, this is their mentality. So the God-forsaken North had no gold in it and therefore was of no interest to the gold-hungry conquistadors. Huh. Listen to this. The God-forsaken North had loads of lost souls in it and therefore it was of great interest to the missionaries. So you're going to begin to see these monks, these friars, these strange, you know, we're always looking at going, that's weird, monks and friars. You know what's interesting is this age of discovery wasn't just for conquistadors, it was also missionaries. You know who discovered most of American territories and things? It was missionaries. Missionaries are going to create maps and all those things. They, they're discovering. They're just as eager to discover this known world as anyone else, but they're interested in souls. So what you're going to see happen in this area known as North America is you're going to see missionaries begin to take it. I, mean, I'm, I know that there were some others uh, in it, but gold had not been discovered in America. And it almost is a blessing that gold was not discovered in America until much later. Because by that time, you have a strong foundation of Christianity being cultivated in this country. So the extraordinary turn of the tables. Though we have this encomienda system of government, which is just evil, you're going to have something begin to take place which is going to turn the tables on what we know as North America. Bartolome de las Casas is going to be one of them, and I'll go into him in just a second. He was a Spaniard colonist 
who is going to come over and he is going to become wealthy. He is going to become bloated in power and he is going to become convicted that what he is doing is actually wrong. And it's actually going to change the course of North American history because of this one guy. Then we have the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Jesuits, and the Huguenots. You have these different expressions of the Christian faith with their varied oddities that are awakening. There's a light that is bursting forth in the church at this time. And yes, there's some weird baggage that they're still carrying around, okay? Granted, out of the dark ages. They're still carrying around some funny traditions, some funny outfits at times, some funny hairdos. And yet, they are going to have a passion to share the gospel and to see souls saved. And what's interesting, if you were to look at their gospel, it's like, hey, that's a good gospel. They're sinners in need of a savior and they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized. You know what? So yeah, they're a little odd. They have a weird hairdo there, but you know what? I, I agree. Sort of like Paul in the prison cell. It's like there's these others that are out there preaching. It's like, praise God, at least they're out there preaching. So we have a turn of the table. So as bad as this story has been so far, did you know that God is going to leverage this in a profound way? Here's our guy, Bartolome de las Casas. He lived from 1484 to 1566. Now remember, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, right? So this guy is going to overlap that. In fact, he is going to be on Columbus's third voyage over. He's going to join that voyage, and that's actually his introduction. So this guy is influenced heavily by Columbus, by his thinking, and yet you're going to see repentance take place in his life. In other words, even though Columbus is going to have some bad qualities, he's going to be a carrier of more than just the barbarity. He's a carrier of this guy, too. So the awakening of Bartolome de las Casas. Las Casas was a Spanish colonist caught up in the deranged thinking of the day. He was given an encomienda of his own in Cuba, ruling over the natives and becoming profoundly wealthy because of it. And then one day in 1516, he saw the evil in it all. He saw that it made him do evil things. And then it made him hate these Indians that he was supposed to love. Huh, that doesn't sound good. He's supposedly a Christian, right? And he comes over and he recognizes that he's only thinking about himself and he's doing very evil things. And he even hates the people that he supposedly justified in his own mind before he came that he was going to come over and serve. And so as a result, he is going to have a serious amount of conviction. And his life is going to change. So he's going to write a book. I think this was in like 19, or 19 15, no, 1542, I think is when this one came out. It was in the 1540s. It's called A Short Account of the Destruction of the Indies. They're still calling this the Indies. And as a result, you're going to see that uh, Las Casas is going to begin to detail for everyone what's actually happened over here. So back in Spain, they think this is a great thing that is happening. But there isn't anyone in Spain, if they actually heard what was happening, that would be supportive of this. And so as a result, when he writes this, it creates, it's sort of like an Uncle Tom's Cabin. If you guys remember what happened uh, when Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, it was, it stirred the north. It's like how we cannot stand for this type of barbarity towards uh, someone just because of their skin color in the south. And this is going to be a similar type of dynamic uh, in, in his book. So he, he received the, the title of the protector of the Indians. 
So Indians, that comes from the word indigenous, those that were native to the land. He becomes their protector. So he's their voice. He's the one speaking on their behalf. This is actually the role, and I'm going to give you something here. This has always been the role of the Christian. Not of the liberal, of the Christian. The Christian is the one that stands up and says, these barbarities cannot stand. I'm not saying that social justice is our prime motivation. It is one of the strains of our life as Christians. We stand for that which is true. So Bartolome de las Casas is going to be nicknamed the protector of the Indians. When his more comprehensive history of the Indies was published in 1552, it was widely circulated and read, causing Spain to become synonymous for barbarity throughout Europe. So all of Europe is going to start looking at Spain as, oh, you guys are sick. I mean, this is terrible. I can't believe what you guys have done. This whole encomienda system is going to fall back on their heads. So this is actually Las Casas speaking. When they, this is out of his book. When they saw every day how they perished from the inhuman cruelty of the Spaniards, this is speaking of the native Indians, how their people were ridden down by horses, cut to pieces by swords, eaten and torn asunder by dogs, burned alive and subjected to all kinds of exquisite torture, those of certain provinces decided to resign themselves to their fate and give themselves over into the hands of their enemies without a struggle. I mean, they just start just saying, just take our life. We can't live this way. It's interesting because if you study the Jews, uh, even in 1942, which is where I'm at in my World War II uh, series, you're going to see that they, when these actions or these pogroms come into a town, that oftentimes they won't lift a finger, they won't run, they'll just go to their death. And you say, how could you do that? If you've gone through this, at that point in time in, in the Holocaust, it has been 11 years of this type of treatment. Actually, uh, nine years of that type of treatment at that time. And so it's an, once you've been worn down by that, it's just like, you know what? It'd be better if we went to what is beyond this world, even if you don't know what is beyond this world. It'd be better to go there than to stay here. It's a very, very sad state of affairs that you see taking place in, uh, in this, the Central and South America at this time. So in 1562, the French Huguenots are going to come over. They're Protestants, and they're seeking a haven from religious persecution, and they settle in what is now Beaufort, South Carolina. So you're going to see the very beginnings of our country, that we know it in North America, is going to be missionaries coming up to reach, from the Franciscans especially, the Jesuits are going to come into uh, the southern territories, and you're going to see the Huguenots along the coastline. Now, the Huguenots are not coming necessarily for missions work. They're coming to find a safe haven from the persecution. Remember, the Protestant Reformation is broken out, and the Huguenots are Protestants. That's not going over very well with the Catholic Church. And so what you're going to see is our country is going to be formed around this rescue location for those that are seeking religious liberty. So not only is it being invaded by missionaries, but it's also Christians that can actually come over here and be able to express their faith. Very fascinating beginnings to a country that is lost if all you do is focus on the conquistadors. The conquistadors is a strain of what actually happened, but it isn't necessarily what happened in North America. It's what led to something happening in North America that is actually going to become quite an amazing ray of hope and sunshine. 
1633, so time has passed. I'm just giving you a, a taste of how this is all going to begin to unfold. Alonso de Benavides, who's a Franciscan friar overseeing the New Mexico missions, recorded that 80,000 Indians had been baptized and that friars based in 25 missions were serving 90 Indian communities. So this is what you see. You see the conquistadors and the barbarity to the south. You're seeing something very different happening to the north. There were two types of discoverers in the age of discovery. One seeking gold, fame, power, and the fountain of youth. And two, one seeking the lost souls of men and God's glory. So it depends on which way you look at this. I understand if all you have in your mind is the conquistadors, why you would think everything in uh, North America must be terrible. And yet what we have is a heritage, and it's beautiful, it's profound. And it involves God taking that which is dark and evil and turning it. God trumping what the enemy is up to. I'm going to agree. The enemy's work is terrible. So you want to tell me the enemy's work is terrible? I'm going to agree and say amen. However, God's work is good. And God has done something in the foundation of this country that I think is worth standing up for, is worth preserving, is worth fighting to defend. The ones seeking the lost souls of men in God's glory. So this is the missionaries that are going to come to this country. You know that many of them were martyred in the land of America? You know that the natives that were even being loved, there's some incredible stories in early American history of the missionaries that are going to come to these hostile, cannibal-like tribes. And just like you see in uh, Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, these types of stories, and they are going to be dinner, if you want to say it that way. In other words, it is terrible stuff, but these missionaries are going to love and serve. This is very different than the conquistadors. This is the laying down of your life so that the, the lost could be saved. And what's going to happen is you're going to see because of this sacrifice, because of this loving givenness of the missionaries, you're going to see Indians begin to come to Christ. They face great difficulties in shining Christ's light in the midst of dark and depraved cultures. Set the, they set the course of the upper 48, that's what we are outside of Alaska and, and Hawaii, decidedly in the direction of a land where the gospel of Jesus Christ could prosper and freedom could ring for all. The work of Jesus his ministry is going to be oftentimes referred to in a national sense. The reason I'm going through this series on America isn't just to celebrate America. It's to actually show how God builds a nation and parallel that with how he builds us as individuals and how he builds the church. Same God, same function. And so as a result, when you understand in the Old Testament, we do this all the time as a church, and we see God speaking to his nation Israel, we also understand that he's speaking to us as individuals, and he's speaking to the body of Christ as a whole. And so we don't lose sight of that, but sometimes we need to integrate it a little more clearly for ourselves so that we understand God's workings with a nation parallel. And that's why I started in the very beginning, I talked about Proverbs and the fact that Proverbs is a king writing to another king. So that he could do what? Rule a nation. Yet when you read the Proverbs, you're thinking about ruling your own soul. That's because the principles of ruling a nation and ruling your own soul are parallel. They're similar. And so what we have is when the Spanish come in with encomienda, they're coming in with the fool's way of ruling. And it's going to create havoc and disaster for themselves, by the way. There was, there's talk about disorder and, and crisis. Rule poorly. Rule is the fool and you'll find that your nation will fall to pieces. 
And you're going to see God's Proverbs actually begin to be exercised in the northern country, which we know is North America. You're going to see a different form of government than encomienda come in that is actually going to preserve rights. Do we still have problems? Yes. Okay, I don't, I don't want to defend everything that was still baked in to the mindsets of those uh, British people that were coming over and the, and the Puritans. There's, there's some baggage that was still there. However, there was a pure strain that came through. Jesus is going to repeat this scripture in his hometown. He is going to read Isaiah 61 in front of all, and he's going to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Just as Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, so are we, the body of Christ. In other words, this is what we do. We do the work of Christ. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There is an obvious evidence when Christ comes onto the stage. Christ's demeanor and disposition is completely opposite the conquistadors. Christ is going to raise up missionaries. He is going to send people into this world to gladly lay down their life, not to get gold, but to get souls. And as a result, that, when I study our history and I see that as a foundation stone of this country, I celebrate it. I cherish it. I cherish our foundation. Yes, you can trace our foundation all the way through to Columbus too. You can. And just like in all of our lives, you can trace what God is doing in our life right now back to very boneheaded bad decisions in our past too, where God had to bring us. Our encomienda system was not working, and it was bringing disaster to our own life, and we had to repent like Las Casas, and we had to change our disposition. You know that all of Spain is basically going to reject Las Casas? He is going to lose his homeland basically because he's willing to stand up and say what is true. And yet, sometimes we need to be willing to do that because we love the truth. This is a fascinating, uh, I'm going to parallel two passages or contrast two passages in Esther, Esther 4.1 and Esther 8.15. Both are speaking of Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai was uh, the uncle, was, was he the uncle or was he the cousin? cousin Mordecai, wasn't he the cousin of Esther? Sort of a strange thought. Uh, but that he is going to be a, a symbol in this story of righteousness. He's going to be a symbol of like the Holy Spirit uh, sort of standing outside the gates uh, of this, of this uh, castle. And so listen to this. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. What did he hear? He heard that there was an evil edict that was issued, that was signed by King Asuherus, and that all the Jews were going to be destroyed. And so what did Mordecai do? He put on sackcloth. And then what do you see? And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. 
All right? Something obviously must have happened in the last four chapters because that's a big change. Something did happen. You know, if you were going to look at the book of Esther, the number one statement you would have if you were to say, what is the book of Esther about? It's about providence. That's what it's about. It's about God positioning. God positioned Esther for such a time as this. So even though evil is being declared, even though evil is being determined, and there's sackcloth and ash. Remember that God is going to bring beauty out of ash? In other words, this is what the Messiah does. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he is going to take the ash, the sackcloth, and he's going to turn it into fine apparel. He is going to do something. What we see in the providence of this country is we're going to see a flip. We're going to see a Mordecai flip of sackcloth and ash unto fine apparel. And as a result, we are going to see the prospering of the gospel throughout the nations because of what takes place in this country. It's a very weird thing to even say that right now with what's happened in our country because I feel like we used to be a Christian country with problems, don't get me wrong. Then we became a post-Christian country and now we're becoming an anti-Christian country. And that is very saddening to me. It is. There's a deep grief in my soul over this. And yet, when the conquistadors begin to move in, God sends forth his missionaries. We need to remember that light shines in darkness. This is our hour. As the church of Jesus Christ, let's pull a Las Casas. Let's pull a Franciscan monk. <laughs> let's pull a Huguenot. Let's do that which stands against the grain to represent and shine the light of Christ in the midst of an ever-darkening age. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 13. This is speaking of Israel. Israel as if it is a, a girl that is covered in blood, sort of lying destitute on the side of the road. Israel was given so much and blew it. Mm -hmm. Boy, does that sound familiar. Now, I am not going to draw a direct parallel and say America is God's new Israel. Okay, I'm not going to try and create some type of eschatological stumbling block for all of us. What I'm going to say is God deals with nations just as he deals with individuals. And we're going to see him deal with a nation right here. He has a heart for this young nation known as Israel and he desires to see it clothed in royal garments. In the same way that God desires that nation to be clothed, all of us in here can hear the gospel when we read Ezekiel 16 and we recognize that we are like that girl and that we are covered in our own sinfulness. And unless he comes along and declares, live, we have no hope. So what we see is both at the national level and at the individual level. And as a result, in, when I think of our nation, I do not give up. There have been multiple, some people would say three great awakenings, two prominent great awakenings throughout our history that have actually taken us and found us in a very decadent place and there has been a total switch in repentance of the direction of our nation. And the church is enlivened and awakened afresh. This has happened multiple times in our history. I remember talking with, it was uh, the older Ravenhill. So Ravenhill's, uh, has, Leonard Ravenhill has two, has two sons. One of them is living in another country. And he, asked me, he said, why are you still living in America? You know, the expiration date on that country is far past. Judgment now waits. I can't argue that judgment 
awaits us. I mean, God's a just God, and we deserve it in every regard. However, the one thing I don't agree with is that the expiration date has already passed. The reason I'm going to say that to you is not because I see obvious signs of a revival of the church of Jesus Christ in this country. It's that I have a burden for it to be revived. So where would that burden come from? Well, the only thing I could discern is that it would come from the Holy Spirit, which means if the Holy Spirit is giving me a burden, and I know other people have it, that is not a signal of expiration date. That's the signal of hope. That does not mean that this country will repent, but that means that God still desires it to. He has not forsaken this country. There are those of us in this country that care deeply about its trajectory and where it's going. We care deeply about the people in this country. If I was in a different country, I would care deeply about that country too. But this is where God has set me. And so if someone is streaming this or listening to the podcast and they're from a different country, parallel this in your own country. There's a weight and a burden that God gives us for the things that are on his heart. I care about this country. There's things right now that are creating a deep ache in my soul. And I recognize one of them is that I see the church of Jesus Christ, not just the the world that doesn't know Christ, but the church becoming fearful. That's not good. It's not good when the church is fearful because that's one thing that we can always have is a fearlessness, a joy, a buoyancy, a hope for the future where the church of Jesus Christ and God will never leave us and never forsake us. He is with us in the darkest hour. And as a result, he is with us now. Even though I know some of us as the church even wonder, it's like, will God even put up with us? I wouldn't doubt if he threw us out. God has revealed himself in Scripture. And he is very long-suffering, patient, praise God. And so that's what I want to finish with is the meditation. First of all, I want to give you this Ezekiel 16 passage. And I want us to meditate upon the nature of God. Just look at it in this. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, I spread my wing over you. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil, and were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. So yes, this is speaking about a nation. And yet, when you hear that, what do you hear? You hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. The church is the bride. And as a result, you're going to see that parallel. Who are these that are being covered? Who, I mean, we're in Christ. We're clothed in his garments. This is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ or those that believe, those that are marked by faith, those that are true Israel. The lens of redemption. It's a term I'll oftentimes use when I'm talking about any type of situation of conflict. And so imagine that someone sticks a dagger in my back and I'm trying to reason through it. I'm trying to appropriate it. Someone else comes up to me and says, what? And they they ask me about it. And of course, there's that that stirring inside of me that wants to be embittered, wants to be uh, spiteful back. But one of the key things that I'm always going to try and reason through is what I call the lens of redemption. 
I want to put on the glasses of Christ. And once you do that, it changes your entire attitude towards everything around you. And that's the one thing I think the church needs right now is a lens of redemption. There's a lot of bait to be upset right now. There's a lot of bait to have your kitchen sermons, you know, that you preach, you know, uh, if you're married, you preach it to your wife. Uh, and you give a piece of your mind to the one person who will still listen. <laughs> and it's called preaching to the choir, by the way. And, but it's a challenge because we need to put on the lens of redemption. And so what I'll oftentimes say is, but God can take even this and turn it to good. And this is how my mind is always choosing to chew on a situation. Instead of look at the worst case scenario, to look at the God possibilities in it. It really does help, by the way, guys, to recognize that God takes all that the enemy means for evil and converts it and turns it. It's one of the most important ideas and truths you will ever land your feet on in Scripture. So listen to this. I'm going to just give some Psalms of David on this exact point. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Israel once again finds himself in a trouble spot. Just follow the story of the nation of Israel and you get very disheartened after a little bit. It's like, God, just give up on this people. <laughs> I mean, have, do they not deserve judgment? Oh, yes, they do. You know how long-suffering God is with this people? They have the cyclical pattern of apostasy where they commit themselves unto God with great gusto and then they fall to pieces. And then their lives are so miserable they come into captivity or they have you know, droughts or famine or uh, war. And then they repent and they give themselves back to Christ or to God and they are with great gusto. And then they fall into that pattern of apostasy again. How long is God going to put up with this? Well, one of the things that we know is that God is long-suffering and he's a God of redemption that he wants to take everything that is being worked against his people and turn it. He's still a God of justice. However, he's a God of redemption. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. That's in Psalm 44, 26. And then Psalm 72, 14. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And then Psalm 119 in verse 134 and verse 154. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. And then in Psalm 130, verse 8. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The lens of redemption. I know I had a, a slide that said the same thing. But I want to use one specific story to sort of show a mentality that I would like to have because it's a godly mentality. God, when he looks at us as individuals, we've been given much, especially in this country. We've been given so much and squandered it. And what is deserving of someone who squanders a great inheritance? Severe judgment. Let's just be point blank on it. Severe judgment is deserved for that. And yet, Jesus is going to come, and when he shares his parables and he reveals his nature, he is going to show the heart of God. And that story of the prodigal should not be overlooked because it is one who was given much and had a place at that table in the house of the Father and is going to take all of that wealth, spend it on himself, and be living with the pigs 
I don't know where we're at right now in that story, but we're pretty close to the pigs. Yet what follows that? That person gets so low that they realize, boy, it'd be so much better to even be a servant in my father's house. That they are going to repent. And the nature of the father in this story is so profound. And I want us to carry it in us. There are a whole bunch of people that are doing dastardly things to the truth of Jesus Christ right now. They're doing dastardly things to our nation that we love. They're squandering a great inheritance. But we need to have the attitude of the Father towards them. That we need to have that longing lookout, that fogging up the windows type of attitude towards them to say, oh, come on, turn, turn. And if you do turn, I'll kill the fatted calf. I'll take my robe off and clothe you with it. I'll take the finger, uh, the finger. I'll take the ring off my finger and put it on yours. In other words, we are ready to spend on behalf of those that are undeserving. The lens of redemption. This is Jesus Christ talking. When he, the prodigal, was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Our nation deserves judgment. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray for God's mercy for our country. But let's also pray that we would be emissaries of that mercy towards those that are deserving of judgment. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, find ourselves in a very, very specific role. We are the light bearers. We are the ones that are commissioned to hold up truth in a generation that wants to knock it down. We need boldness. We need courage. We need love. We need mercy. The treasury of heaven is open. Let's go get it. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask for that boldness and that courage. We ask that you would fill us with that love. We ask that you would pour forth your mercy into our hearts so that it may gush forth out of us towards others. Lord, I thank you that your mercy is greater. I thank you that you are first merciful and then secondly, a judge. Lord, I thank you for your justice. I thank you for your judgment for it is a signal of your love. You will preserve truth. But Lord, I thank you that you are long-suffering. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we as the church would represent you in this hour, that we would not be spiteful, that we would not be hateful, that we would not be bitter, that we would not be resentful, but that we would forgive those that are harming the truth right now and that are harming your name. Lord, we love you. And we lift high the name of Jesus Christ in this generation. We declare that he is Lord. And may every knee bow unto Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.